Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord God, for your revealed truth through the scriptures, Lord, and the spirit that you have given us that we might ponder these things and come to an understanding of them through your grace. Thank you, Lord, for a grace that you have bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus, bringing us together, forming us into one man, the body of Christ, the church, Lord, called to make known your manifold wisdom. We thank you for such an amazing privilege and such an amazing grace. And we offer up all our praise to you in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, yesterday, to no one's surprise, was a worldly celebration called Valentine's Day in which many lovers take advantage of the time to reflect on why they appreciate their significant others, and some utilize the time to renew their love for one another. Many times, the Christian response to these worldly events, such as Christmas, Valentine's Day, Halloween, and all sorts of holidays, is disdain. And some go as far as speaking against these traditions. However, I believe there is an opportunity for us Christians to examine ourselves and renew our vows of love and commitment to our Lord, whom we are called to love with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. For many of us, this will be a time of returning to our first love. I have been looking forward to starting this series for some months now. As I previously mentioned and explained, this will be a year-long journey of going through the entire Bible cover to cover. This will be something we, the church, will do together. I know many of you here in our local congregation have expressed excitement and interest, as well as many others online. I look forward to encouraging you all to grow, witnessing the growth, discussing the details of the knowledge of God, as well as preaching through some of the details we will go through in this series. Now that all of you should have received the reading list here, um, Return to Your First Love, and it's a nice reading list, bringing you from Sunday, February 22nd to Sunday, January 10th. I have made this list available to our brothers and sisters online as well. We will begin reading through Genesis chapters 1 and 2 this week, our current reading, and then next week, next Sunday, the 22nd, my sermon will deal with the details and context of Genesis 1 and 2, as well as hopefully answer questions that some of you may have. This will be a contextual and honest sermon series through the whole text of our Bible. As I pray, this will bring clarity to many areas. Many of us have questions, and we all have them. Amen? I have never been a fan of the common misunderstanding that pervades our culture, that you can simply pick up a Bible, begin reading, and completely understand the text. Imagine that. 66 books ranging from all sorts of literature, written by various men's, men in all sorts of ancient walks of life, and not to mention books ranging anywhere from 5,000 to 2,000 years ago. All summed up in this one amazing book. And we have come to the point where we believe you could just pick up the book and understand. No. The term Bible comes from a Latin term meaning collection of books. We could go in the direction of talking about how, why, how, why, and when these 66 books have been summed up in what we Christians who believe in sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone, call the Bible. These writings are not simply historical writings that have been well-preserved and are factually reliable. No, we hold that these scriptures are inspired by God. However, we could go that way. We could go the way of learning about the Bible and learning the history of the Bible, but that is not the intention of this series. I have entertained the thought of maybe early in 2016, we will deal with the historical work behind the formation of the Bible as we know it today. The goal of this series 
as is any series here at Blue Point Bible Church, is of course to encourage you to grow in the grace and knowledge of God and to edify you with the Word of God. However, more specifically, this series is designed to guide you through the biblical story and enable you to understand the manifold wisdom of God as narrated through Scripture. In many ways, challenging all of us to see that maybe we have created a God in our own image rather than truly understanding the God of Scripture and His story revealed through those Scriptures. Also, falling in love with someone or something commits one to learning more about it, or her, him. The more you learn, the more you love. I spent my day yesterday, my Valentine's Day, with a young lady that I have come to love, and the more I learn about her, the more I love about her. The reality of how one's love for God encourages a zeal has been demonstrated through my personal testimony in spiritual walk with Christ, a story that I detail in my book, Freaked Out by the New Covenant. The fact of the matter is, the more I learn about God, I become, what, the only way I've learned how to explain it is by saying I've been freaked out by this message of good news, the amazing grace of God. That God, by no merit of my own, has reached down and pulled me with an irresistible grace to worship Him, to live in the abundant grace that He has provided for those who he loves, for those who he calls. Yet, many of us have decided to accept our own stories of God. Some have even gone as far as to allow this confusion to creep into their interpretation and understanding of the Bible. Therefore, having your own story but calling it God's. That's a problem. How this happened, when this happened, why this happened, where this happened... I believe will be answered through this Bible series. Today, as an introduction, I want to explain presuppositions. I want to explain and share and kind of detail what presuppositions are, where they are, and how we can uh, understand what presuppositions are to better enable us to understand our Bible. Famous Bible scholar J.I. Packer once noted, We do not start our Christian lives by working out our faith by ourselves. It is mediated to us by Christian tradition in forms of sermons, books, and established patterns of church life and fellowship. We read our Bibles in light of what we have learned from these sources. We approach the scriptures with minds already formed by the mass of accepted opinions and viewpoints with which we have come into contact. In both the church and the world, it is easy to be unaware that it has happened. It is hard even to begin to realize how profoundly tradition in this sense has molded us. But we are forbidden to become enslaved by human tradition either secular or Christian. Whether it be Catholic tradition or critical tradition or ecumenical tradition, we may never assume the complete rightness of our own established ways of thought and practice and excuse ourselves the duties of testing and reforming them by the scriptures. Surely that is a beautiful quote. And that's the reason why we continue to gather and not forsake the assembly. Amen? And yes, before I explain all about presuppositions, I will say this. The subtle undertone of this series is that many quote-unquote Christians, and yes, in my notes, that term is in quotes, have fallen in love with their own presuppositions and need to be reminded that they need to return to their first love. The Apostle John, to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, writes this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, 
that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now we know that this is a challenge to the first century church at Ephesus in regards to what God was doing with the events of AD 70 and the redemption of Jerusalem. However, there's something we can receive from this. Clearly, God was proud of the church at Ephesus, that they had stood strong in the name of Christ and for the glory of God, yet they wandered away. And they wandered away so much to the point that God had said he would remove their lampstand, which is their light, the light from in the midst of them, because they have left their first love. I imagine they went back to the law. They probably began to uh, foster more of the Mosaic covenant, those laws and those principles in their community, rather than the grace principles that were being taught by you know, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter throughout the scriptures. Imagine that because that is what the issue was in the first century church. It was that constant um, pull back into the Mosaic covenant under that old law, the desire to be put back into the yoke of slavery, as the Apostle Paul calls it in the book of Galatians. I believe that we're just as guilty today. I believe that we have this book right here with 66 books that through the history of the church has been put together for us to understand the redemptive work of God. And yet we fancy our own interpretations and our own thoughts more so than the word of God. To me, that is very clearly a call to return to our first love. The irony of this is that people will use this passage here in Revelation chapter 2 and say that this is talking to us today in the church. How many people do we know are waiting for the events of Revelation without understanding their proper context? People have allowed their own personal interpretations to take over instead of what the scriptures clearly teach. The amount of resources on this topic to bring us back to a better understanding of our Bible is amazing. Each week, along with the sermon, you can expect extra information to be emailed to you and posted on our church website under weekly updates. The amazing book, Beyond Creation Science, by Tim Martin and Jeff Vaughn, yes, personal friends, as well as just amazing teachers, has been a, a great help. You know, and I'm going to go as far as to say I, I'm not going to preach their entire book to you this morning or through this series. However, they have an amazing wealth of information in that book. Also, in the Fulfilled Covenant Bible, now under the title of the Kingdom Bible, Michael Day provides an excellent introduction into the narrative of the Old Testament right in the beginning of that Bible. So we're calling this returning to our first love, and we're saying that this is going to be a narrative, an understanding of the biblical narrative, going through the full flow of the Bible cover to cover. And I believe this is important because this brings us into a more of a Hebraic way of understanding things in contrast to a Hellenistic way of explaining things. For example, the Hebrews were storytellers. They would love to tell large stories to depict pictures. This is a concept that is well known in the ancient Near East. And they would tell these amazing stories or just even sometimes short stories or allegories to create a bigger picture. And we see Jesus doing this throughout all of the Gospels. You know, how many times does he say the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed or is like a seed that was planted or is like leaven that goes into, you know, the lump and then, you know, brings it about, brings about the yeast in the whole lump. He, he uses all of these analogies, these stories to give you a bigger picture. And that is the Hebraic way of thinking. The Hellenistic way of thinking was conceptual. You would have concepts and you would, you would break things down. And I believe going through the narrative is going to demonstrate the, the difference and maybe the confusion that some of this has 
reaped in Christianity. As we pick up this inspired ancient text, we must understand it and then apply it. Usually, the historical distance has been overcome in many churches by reducing the complex narrative of Scripture to a universal argument about God and humanity and allegorizing, allegorizing as much of the detail as possible. The basic error of interpretation made by modern evangelicals is to think that the story of Scripture can be translated into a sequence of theological abstractions, creation, fall, redemption, final judgment, which then proves, provides a frame for every personal story. We are sinners in need of Christ's atoning death if we are to escape eternal death or worse. And this is what is coming from most pulpits across the Western Hemisphere. As one writer explained, this allows us to place ourselves in the biblical story, but at a cost. Reading scripture as something other than what it really is, we forfeit the ability to make sense out of our own historical circumstances in the way that scripture makes sense out of the historical experience of Israel. So then we begin to tell the story completely different. And I could go on and on with examples of people that I have heard very erroneously tell the story of scripture. I could go on and on about the importance of understanding and preaching through the entire biblical narrative. However, instead, I will offer some information for you to pursue further clarity on this method of understanding the Bible. Each week, you will receive an outline sheet to the sermon, and this will give you information, will give you areas of discussion, will give you things to look for in your readings. Again, remember, the goal of this series is to have a God-led clarity on what exactly the manifold wisdom of God is and how we can endeavor to walk worthy of making such a manifold wisdom known to the world around us. A great start would be the writings of Andrew Perryman in regards to the biblical narrative, which are available online and in print form. There are a host of other areas that Mr. Perryman and I... I'm sorry, there are a host of areas where Mr. Perryman and I may disagree. However, his method of allowing the Bible to say what it says is amazing and has been very beneficial to my studies. Utilizing Andrew Perryman's work, I want to highlight some aspects of going through our sermon series in light of the biblical narrative. These are some of the things that we seek to do as we go through the full force of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. One, the narrative historical method endeavors to determine how the text of the New Testament, a theological document, makes sense in their original historical context and how to work with the constraints of that perspective. Number two, the emphasis of a narrative draws attention to the historical context, not merely the immediate present circumstances. There are past and future dimensions to it. The teaching and actions of Jesus and the apostles are shaped by a sense of narrative and what has brought, of what has brought matters to this point and what lies ahead. Jesus came in a certain context. His, the message of the gospel doesn't just come to us in a vacuum. There's a full story happening from the book of Genesis leading up to the book of Matthew, you know, Genesis to Malachi. There's in the law and the prophets. We can then begin to understand the messianic ministry. And then we can begin to understand, you know, all that that was entailed to accomplish. This is something that will be highlighted and drawn out in my discussion happening in March 21st here at Blue Point Bible Church. The past bears on the present as historical memory. This is something very big in, in Israel, Israel's literature in the Bible. In the New Testament, this memory is embedded primarily in the Jewish scriptures, but also in occasional recollection of historical events and perhaps in historical or apocalyptic traditions. A major part of the narrative Reading, therefore, is the recovery of the Old Testament narrative and arguments that have shaped the New Testament narrative. You have to understand the beginning before you try to understand the end. Amen? 
The narrative method also assumes that there's no fundamental hermeneutical shift between the Old and New Testament. You know, I know uh, in Beyond Creation Science and a lot of other preterists have been very clear on that we should possibly remove that New Testament, you know, uh, section divider in our Bible. Who put that there? Why, why have we divided up the story? It's, you know, Old Testament and New Testament. Isn't it just the story of God? Maybe removing that page would bring so much more clarity in regards to the full narrative of Scripture. However, I believe we could get past that even with the page in your Bible. So no worries. Don't get to ripping everything out yet. Also, the narrative historical method falls between the historical criticism and theological interpretation, but relates them in different ways. It mostly resists theological interpretation as potentially, but not inevitably. In other words, when I read the text, I don't have to say, oh, I have to immediately put myself into that text. No, I can understand what that text meant in its primary context and then therefore allow that to give me insight for today. For example, one that I have commonly said to people is when I read the, the, the New Testament and I understand the implications of what was happening in that first century to God's people. You know, Israel had abandoned the truth of God. They had went over to the commandments of men. They had given into the state. They began to work with the Roman government. You know, you had the Sadducees involved with the Roman government. And what this ended up doing was putting the commandments of men, putting the ways of men, putting their own favoritism before them, before God. And we know what ended up happening. It brought judgment upon them. God's people, when they do not walk according to God's dictates, face judgment. So what ended up happening was we know the Romans ransacked the city and completely plundered and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. What could we learn from that today? Well, what we could learn as the people of God, the necessity of being faithful in regards to our devotion to God. We can learn about the failure of all this materialistic, all this um, tangible world to hold back the judgment of God. And we could clearly see the displeasure of God when we put the commandments of men before his. You see, I didn't have to artificially impose myself into the text to have an explanation and a hope. You know, that'll be a fun one during the series. And a hope for uh, me today. The narrative historical method does not have an inherent bias against miracles. Penal substitutionary atonement... We have a high Christology or, um, you know, or Trinitarianism. None of this goes against that. This is all stuff that needs to be dealt with as we go through the historical narrative. The historical narrative assumes a historical frame of reference from the perspective of the New Testament community for the theological content of the New Testament. Rather than suppose that the characteristic language and argumentation has reference to universal abstractions, we ask first to what concrete events, cir- circumstances, and experiences such words as gospel, kingdom, judgment, salvation, justification, faith, destruction, resurrection, age to come, refer. We want to find these phrases and these terms in their proper biblical context. And I believe going through the narrative is going to provide such an amazing opportunity for us to do exactly that. If we are going to be consistently hermeneutic, which, you know, if we're going to have a consistent hermeneutic, which is basically uh, understanding our, our interpretation, having a full flow, a consistent flow of the story from Genesis to Revelation... I, uh, Andrew Perryman here suggests that the principle con- that we must connect the New Testament with the historical narrative of God's Old Testament. And failure to do so has caused much confusion in today's church. So, me going through this series with you all, returning to our first love, is my walking worthy of making known the manifold wisdom of God. As Andrew Perryman notes, A central task of biblical preaching and related activities is simply to tell that story. 
not as theology dressed up as a narrative, but as theology interpreted historically. Another great resource I have read on the importance of telling the narrative is The Next Christians by Gabe Lyons, in which he challenges Christians to truly tell the story of Scripture in its entirety and not to settle for the soundbite theology or piecemealed sinner gospel. So when we enter into our Bible, let's, let's begin to open up our Bible and, and enter into this text. At the time of Jesus and Rabbi Hillel, which are the, you know, the two men that are, stand at the origins of Christianity and rabbinic Judaism, there was no Bible. I believe that, I see, I, I personally, Pastor Michael Miano, believe in the power of the written word. I love reading, I love writing, I, I love the fact that I'm able to open up this book and trust in the Spirit of God to, you know, that it's inspired and he can illuminate the truth in this book. Therefore, it, makes, it should make it no surprise that I hold to the cuneiform tablet view or the early view that there has been a written code since the time of Adam for God's people. In Jesus' day, there was a Bible in the sense that there were certain sacred books that would have been widely recognized as foundational and authoritative in religious as well as social practices. However, the canon had not been formed as what we know today. I mentioned a bit ago that the formation of the Bible is not our intended goal in this series. Instead, we want to fall in love with the story woven through the pages of our Bible. That noted, we will surely deal with a host of information of how the literature was preserved and came to be a part of our Bibles during this series. This will be a very important journey. So the first thing we must start with when we open our Bible is audience relevance. And really what audience relevance is saying is, what is the who, what, where, why, and when of this text? What is being said in this text? And I'm set out to uh, demonstrate some of that before you this morning. First thing is, is when we open up our Bible, we begin to see the story of in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And then we go on, and the only first people we really read of are Adam and Eve. So it would make sense that we would say, well, this is a story of God dealing with Adam and Eve. Where? We know that this is in the ancient Near East. And, you know, there's a lot of debates about Eden's location. You can go anywhere from uh, the Hebrew mythological view of under the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, or you can... Uh, Use the historical view of it's in you know, a certain region of Iraq. Um, or you could even sit with some of the more confused views of it being in what we currently call Israel or the land of Canaan. When? Now that, that begins another question. That begins of how you believe the book was written. And uh, that, that also brings how. You know, how it was written. And I, I'm ready to demonstrate some of that before you this morning. How was this historical information recorded and relayed? I, as I mentioned before, I hold to the early viewer cuneiform tablet view, being that these were written as far back as Adam. The documentary hypothesis, which uh, says that these were um, largely written and compiled during captivity in Babylon by Moses, with you know here uh, editorial updates here and there, is um, another view. Dake's annotated reference Bible defends this view, the, the documentary hypothesis that Moses is the author of Genesis to Revelation by saying that heathen writers such as Tatticus, Juvenal, Strabo, Lunginus, and Porphyry, Porphyry established Mosaic authorship, as well as mentioning Acts chapter 7, verse 22, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. I was surprised to read young earth creationist Ken Ham's view on this when he says, presumably Adam wrote down all that God had given him concerning the original creation. He would have recorded this and other events under God's direction, and Moses later obtained this material and compiled it into the book of Genesis. Other scholars have noted that there's evidence that even this older form of Hebrew used in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 may have been a translation from yet an older account. 
So you see where the confusion comes in with where and when and how. <laughs> you know, there's different theories being proposed. Again, this is an area where we must do proper research. And you'll notice in the papers I had given you this morning in your bulletins that there will be details on the um, figuring out the, the way that the historical information was recorded and relayed. Why was Genesis relayed? What was the intention of this writing? And this is where there seems to be serious confusion, misrepresentation, and presuppositions. Understanding the perspectives, their history, and so forth allows us to gain clarity in these areas, especially as we seek to understand the original audience's perspective over our personal presuppositions. I, you know, one of the more disgusting ways of completely confusing the Bible is to take the passage in 2 Timothy and to say that when it says to rightly divide the word of truth, study to show yourself approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth, that what this was is an um, interpretational method of dividing the truth. And we know John Nelson Darby and other dispensationalists adhere to this abused form of reading the Bible. Again, rightly dividing simply meant rightly dividing, you know, making the best use of the word and, and properly going through it not having a specific system. And what rightly dividing according to the dispensational view has done is, is it, has, it has given them presuppositions of a premillennial view of nature. You know, now you have all these dispensationalist presuppositions that have been added into the Bible and require you to read it in a certain way in order to understand it. I'm glad to say I will reject all forms of the dispensational ethic. In, um, you know, when we open up Genesis, we have all these different theories of why Genesis was written. You have the, the old earth theory, that this is, the, this is telling us the cosmological creation of our planet, earth. And you, know, the, you have the old earth is that the earth is very old, and this is held to by a post-millennial, um, a lot of people in the partial preterist perspective, as well as in dispensationalism, those who hold to the gap theory or the day-age theory. Both of these, you know... Um, Foster dispensationalism. I must believe that 8,000 years ago, at bare minimum, um, Moses' time, 8,000 years ago, I'm sorry, not, that's not Moses' time, um, bare minimum 5,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, that Moses was talking about the cosmological creation of heaven and earth, or whoever was writing. That should baffle you a bit. In Dake's Annotated Reference Bible, they give a bunch of notes about earth before Genesis 1. And they, you know, they say that all the vegetation was in a state of maturity, citing Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. And then they cite Job and a bunch of areas where uh, they believe that this is what society was like before Adam. You know, Job, they say, is older than Genesis. However, we didn't start there because our canon is not built that way. We start at Genesis because that is talking about the origins of the heaven and the earth. Job is almost a reflection, a look back on what God had been doing with his people. So we will, we will get to that, and we will be able to see that in its proper understanding. You, you know, you would imagine the amount of times that God tells the full story of saving Israel from Egypt throughout the Bible. And that's what God's doing through Job. Again, it was an illustration of God dealing with his covenant people. The young earth perspective wants us to believe that the, the beginning of Genesis is telling us about the cosmological creation of the earth about 6,000 years ago, thus making the earth very young. And this is formed from a very strict, literal fashion of reading the genealogies in the Bible. What we will have to do is see if that's the way that it was intended to be read. Then you have the myth allegorical interpretation, which is, you know, um, I, this week I read a book called Hebrew Myths, which enabled me to see where a lot of the confusion in Christianity comes from. For example, Hebrew Myths by Robert Graves and Raphael Patai 
If you listen to the contents of the areas there that there are Hebrew myths and confusion, for example, the creation according to Genesis, the creation according to other biblical texts, mythical cosmology, the primeval monsters described, the Rim and the Ziz, the fall of Lucifer, the birth of Adam, Adam's helpmeets, paradise, the fall of man, Samael's re- rebellion, which is Satan, the births of Cain and Abel, the act of love, fratricide, the birth of Seth, the sons of God and the daughters of men, the birth of Noah, the deluge, Noah's drunkenness, the Tower of Babel, Abraham's ancestry, Abraham's birth, Abraham and the idols, Abraham in Egypt, Abraham's rescue of Lot, the severed carcasses, Ishmael, Abraham and Gerar, the birth of Isaac, Lot at Sodom, Lot at Zoar, the sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham and Keturah, Isaac's marriage, Isaac and Gerar, the births of Esau and Jacob, Abraham's death, the battered birthright, the stolen blessing, Esau's marriages, Jacob at Bethel, Jacob's marriages, birth of the twelve patriarchs, Jacob's return to Canaan, Jacob at Peniel, reconciliation of Jacob and Esau, the rape of Dinah, Reuben and Bilhah, Judah and Tamar, the deaths of Isaac, Leah and Esau, Joseph in the pit, Joseph at Zilaika, Joseph in prison, Joseph becomes viceroy, the famine, the brothers return, Jacob in Egypt, the death of Jacob, the death of Joseph, and that's just to name some. These are all areas where there's various Hebrew myths and various Hebrew interpretations of what these texts mean. And yet today, the Protestant Christian church will stand and say, this is what it must mean. Why? And that is where we have to begin to ponder what the scriptures really mean and where we're getting our presuppositions. For example, this past week I met with a, uh, well, I didn't meet, I, I met a Jewish man from Israel while I was reading at Dunkin' Donuts. I was reading the book, The Hebrew Myths, and he, uh, he did not seem to favor Hebrew myths. However, then when we got into talking about Israel and we got into talking a lot of the Christian principles, me and him came into disagreement. So, again, we must understand where our presuppositions come from. And then, of course, you have the theistic evolutionary side. Um, you know, BioLogos is an organization that has been um, interpreting the book of Genesis to foster understanding of theistic evolution. And, you know, again, this is an area that needs to be investigated. Is this what Genesis is intending to tell us? What is important is that we relate other ancient texts. Um, for example, in the NASB Study Bible, they have a large portion of list of... Um, of all the ancient texts that relate to the biblical details. And what, these, what this does is it allows us to see the subject matters that were important to the people of that time in that re- um, region, and we get to see all the details that fill the book of Genesis. What's very clear in the book of Genesis is that it's, it's you know, an ancient writing that's giving you the God creating a relationship with mankind. Again, it's, we're, we're going to look through a lot of other historical documents. We're going to see really what the Bible is intending us to say. For example, they say that the closest ancient literary parallel to, the Meso, um, to Genesis is the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian text, Enuma Elish, which has a similar story of creation, flood, and rebellion. Real quickly, when we open up Genesis, there's also, I don't want to make it seem as though I'm saying presuppositions are necessarily an evil thing. Presuppositions can indeed be healthy. For example, when you open up the Bible... We know that it says in Genesis 1-2, God said, or Genesis 1-3, God said. Therefore, a presupposition that is very clear in our Bibles is that God existed. The ancients had no problem with this. This was something they believed without, beyond any reasonable doubt. Everybody had their deities. Whether it was a bunch of them, you know, the difference between the Israelite faith would have been that it was a monotheistic God, a one true God. However, all these ancient you know, 
People had their own deities, their own gods that they believed ruled them and made a relationship with them and led them. So, again, another, an understanding of the political deities and how they understood their rulership over their lives is a presupposition we must begin the book of Genesis with. Also, you know, we see God bringing light. Therefore, it is God who provides, opening up from the book of Genesis. And clearly, we see covenant woven through the pages of, from Genesis to Revelation, as I am ready to demonstrate next week in more detail. These are all presuppositions that need to be humbly reviewed. I posit that many of these presuppositions that many force into the scriptures are foreign concepts as far as biblical literature is concerned. This week, as I read through various resources to get ready to launch this series, I was of course excited, but I, had, I had surely had moments of frustration in seeing how confused many areas of Christian theology truly is. How many have wandered away from the true knowledge of God, as alluded to by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1. The fact that there is a quote-unquote true knowledge of God implies that there is a false knowledge of God. Many have fallen in love with a story that they have made up and need to take this journey through the pages of Scripture to find clarity and to be challenged by the Scriptures, ultimately challenged to return to your first love. So how do we literally understand the Bible? Next week, I will highlight areas where a wooden literalism, what I will point out as an unnatural literalism, has been applied and thus reaps confusion in regards to the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, as well as throughout the entire Bible. Modern Christians in the Genesis debate tend to be chronocentric. They get stuck in their own time period and cultural mindset. What is taken as the common sense understanding about the essential nature and geography of our planet today was hardly common sense for Christians before the 1500s. Thank you to the amazing insights from Beyond Creation Science. What has happened is, through a personal perspective of us putting our own lives as important over everything else, seem uncommon? I would point out the total depravity of man. So in doing that, that we constantly put ourselves before everything, we think we're the center of the universe and it all begins with us and my understanding must stand before everything else, we have allowed an arbitrary literalism to creep into the Bible. I have witnessed both Bible teachers' messages as well as have, as well as have seen this done in explaining Bible prophecy. They take a literalism that this, the text doesn't necessarily necessitate. The book Beyond Creation Science records a lot of quotes from well-known Bible teachers who utilize this chronocentric, self-centered perspective when they open up their Bibles. One writer noted, it is very important to grapple with the nature of biblical language in order to see properly what the Bible means by what it says. One of the ways that we go about doing this is the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets scripture, which is beautifully outlined in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Ultimately, what we're talking about is hermeneutics, how we interpret our Bible. Hermeneutics is just a fancy term for interpreting the Bible. And I want to share with you some insights from Beyond Creation Science in regards to interpretation. And I'm going to be reading some notes from Appendix A, the significance of hermeneutics, which is basically the principles of biblical interpretation. The problem with a plain literalism is that the original audience would not understand the text in the same way as the modern reader. Literalism assumes that our concerns were their concerns, that our mindset was their mindset, and that our modern questions are the questions 
the text was meant to answer. Have you ever talked to somebody possibly that's 70 years older than you? Did the world seem the same when they were your age? Did they have the same concerns as you do your age? Or do you see the advancement of our society? The information age has provided for an amazing turnabout in understanding the Bible. For example, a while back I had written a blog about John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. And in there he gives us some amazing details on understanding our Bible, and I want to share them with you real quickly. He says this, The Old Testament does communicate to us, and it was written for us, and for all humankind, but it was not written to us. It was written to Israel. It is God's revelation of himself to Israel, and secondarily through Israel to everyone else. 20th century scholarship, as noted by N.T. Wright, has at least one great advantage over its predecessors. It has been realized that Jesus must be understood in his Jewish context. And as John Walton notes, the most respectful reading we can give of the text, the reading most faithful to the face of the value of the text, and the most literal understanding, if you will, is the one that comes from their world and not ours. So what we need to do is rather than translating the culture, we need to enter the culture. We need to understand what the mind of the ancients would have thought about what we're reading in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Continuing in Beyond Creation Science, they said, It is a fundamental principle to gather from the scriptures themselves the precise meaning of what, what the writers intended to convey. We should also remember that the scriptures of old in the New Testament are a world by themselves. Although written at sundry times and devoted to many different themes, taken together they constitute a self-interpreting book. The old rule, therefore, that scripture must be interpreted by scripture is most important to sacred hermeneutics. You see, and we would go over the change of language over time. We could go over the change of allegories and analogies and details, understandings of the creation of the world. And we can see that our world is far different than the world of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Throughout this series, you will have ample opportunity to stare the confusion of Christian theology in the face. And hopefully, through your reading, my messages, and shared resources, we will offer clarity in regards to such serious matters. Surely our God desires that we worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen? Sadly, you will all see the bait-and-switch tactics utilized by dispensationalists, the willingness, the willing ignorance fostered by many Bible teachers, and the nagging lack of consistency that follows many people's interpretation of the Bible. David Shilton, well-known Bible expositor and author, wrote, The Bible is literature. It is divinely inspired and inerrant literature, but it is literature all the same. This means we must read it as literature. We cannot understand what the Bible means unless we appreciate its use of literary styles. Milton Terry, renowned theologian, follows this statement by saying, Any satisfactory interpretation must be preceded by a determination of the class of literature to which it belongs. And he goes on to remark, We gain nothing for the honor of Scripture by attempting to force upon them a meaning they were never intended to convey. Therefore, speaking literally, the most literal interpretation is the one that is in most keeping with the literature we find early on in Genesis. That is exactly what we will be looking to do next week. We, will, we want to literally understand the story as it is laid out for us by our God through the scriptures. Conrad Hires, a writer and minister, explains that the church, by and large, in its consuming passion to be faithful to the scriptures, 
it turns away from the central religious concerns of the biblical authors and focuses it on issues largely modern and secular. It exchanges its spiritual and symbolic birthright for a mess of tangible pottage. We don't want to do that here. We want to understand the story in its proper context. We want to allow the story to have primacy and then allow our interpretation and our application to be secondary. Amen? So this week, we will begin reading through Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in our own time and write down the areas you have questions. Write down the areas that stick out to you. Write down the things that might seem foreign to a 21st century context. It's important to come to an understanding of what type of literature Genesis is and how that form of literature would have been utilized by the ancients to communicate a message. And, of course, what message Genesis literally intends to convey to us. The question we will embark upon next week is, what was God doing in the beginning in creating the heavens and the earth? Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your spirit that opens up these truths to us, Lord. I thank you for the men and women of God that have blazed these trails long before me and have laid out amazing truths for me to be able to ponder and think about and grapple with, Lord. I thank you for the diligence of a congregation that allows me to, allows all of us, Lord, to continue to walk worthy. Lord, I thank you for the diligence of a congregation that searches the scriptures and endeavors to bring glory to you. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your revealed truth. And we give you all our glory and all your glory (laughs) through your name. Amen.